You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today, we're going to have two very important conversations about the importance of recruiting diverse participants in clinical trials and the impact on health outcomes. I'm joined first by Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. She is the president and CEO of Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and a great expert on this subject. Dr. Montgomery Rice, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you. And a word to our audience before we begin, please send any questions you may have for Dr. Montgomery Rice to at Post Live. That's at Post Live. You can tweet them to at Post Live. Thanks so much. And Dr. Montgomery Rice, I'd like to start by plunging straight into the pandemic, which gave such a striking illustration of how Black, uh, Latinx, and Indigenous populations were overwhelmingly and disproportionately affected by the pandemic. How has that uh, made your thinking evolve about the importance of recruiting diverse participants for clinical trials? So thank you, Francis, for that question. You know, COVID-19 made it abundantly clear, right, that diseases uh, affect different parts of the uh, population differently. And we saw that. We saw the increase, um, the disproportionate increase in the number of African-Americans and Hispanics that were being disproportionately impacted by this uh, disease. And it wasn't because they were necessarily black. It was because they were our frontline workers. It was because they lived in households where they could not uh, separate if they became exposed. We also saw uh, some challenges, of course, with testing and people having access to um, uh, the vaccines when they became available. So all of those things really did show us how, first of all, you had a disease that disproportionately impacted people of color. People were first questioning whether or not it was due because of their race or their gender. And then secondly, we know that this disease, if it was killing people, it may have been because they had an increased burden of other chronic diseases. So again, another reason why one would want to participate in a clinical trial. You're painting a very complex picture there of all these different factors from socioeconomic right. to pre-existing conditions to current inequities. How do you start to untangle those various threads of threat, if you like? First of all, you know, as a scientist, first of all, I look to the data. And one of the first things we had to do during the pandemic was to make sure that we had accurate data. So we really pushed at Morehouse School of Medicine and others with the CDC and HHS to make sure that we could get ac uh, accurate information to understand where we were seeing the highest level of cases and then what were the social determinants that would be impacting that. So you may have heard that Morehouse School of Medicine received the $40 million grant from HHS. And one of the things that we did was immediately go out to the community and form partnerships with grassroots organizations that would build trust between us and, to, and the community so that people would go get tested. 
we then, after we started to see the disproportionate number of cases, we say, okay, well, what are the resources that are needed in order for people to be treated if they are, are test positive or for them to be able to work from home? So we then partner with many agencies to make sure that we could address some of the social determinants of health and including making sure that people would have access to testing, transportation to testing, that when they got to the emergency room, that they would be treated adequately and now what we've done with that, uh, with the $40 million grant is that we've not only just connected them to testing, we then connected them to treatment, we then connected them to participation in a, in a vaccine trial, and then, of course, accessing, access to the vaccines. So I want to ask a little bit more about vaccine trials. I think early in the pandemic, the National Institutes of Health gave Moderna a C for its recruitment of minority populations. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing an impact from that um, directly or indirectly in terms of take up of the vaccine or how people talk about the vaccine? You know, one of the things that we were very, very sure and clear that we needed to do was to be a participant in a vaccine trial site because we are a trusted entity. So myself, along with the other three presidents of the other uh, three historically black colleges and university, universities partnered with the NIH to ensure that our institutions would be clinical trial sites. And that made a big difference, we believe, in ensuring that we would see stronger participation from African-Americans and Hispanics. We also participated at a national level. So Dr. James Hildreth, the president of Meharry, has been on one of the uh, CDC and the FDA panels. I participated in multiple NIH review panels where we were looking at the community engagement. So we were present to make sure that the messaging would be well received and that it was inclusive. We then, blackdoctors.org uh, and, and Black Doctors Against COVID uh, also did multiple webinars over the six, eight month period of time where we talked to 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people online. One time we had 18,000 people online and we were just answering questions, Francis. We dealt with the concerns that people had about trust it, with the health system and we dealt with the Tuskegee issues and the Henrietta Lacks and we were sensitive to people's concerns. But then we said to people, this virus is disproportionately impacting people of color. We must participate in the vaccine trials to determine if there is some unexpected impact, negative or positive, that we would see because of who we are as black people, who we are as non-white persons. And so we got a lot of participation, I think because we were transparent with people about what we didn't know, and we made sure that we were inclusive in our messaging and inclusive in our understanding of their concerns. I am really learning a lot from these success stories you're pointing to, and I'm wondering how that message has gone beyond um, institutions that are not predominantly black. Are you seeing an uptake of this understanding more broadly? For sure we have. You know, one of the things that 
we have all tried to do is to make sure that we learn from this pandemic. And that is not just at the HBCU medical schools. Many of my majority colleagues are, have been very, very interested in partners, partnerships, and we have done just that. We have partnered with them to extend the opportunities for more inclusion in, in clinical trials and more participation of uh, non-white individuals at their institutions because they too take care of persons uh, uh, who are uh, of African-American descent. And so we've partnered with uh, other entities to develop co-branding and messaging that would make people feel more comfortable at their institutions for participating in clinical trials. Many of them have served on panels with us around the country to make sure that we say to them, this is just not something that has to be owned and led by the HBCUs. All of us have an interest in all of us being healthy. You mentioned Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks, which are such, they loom so large in all these discussions. But give it, take a step back, if you can, for me, and tell me how those lingering wrongs continue to affect people and how you overcome that long, long standing distrust, which is there for very good reasons. You know, I think that it lingers because um, the stories um, can push people into action, but it can also push people into inaction. And so the way that we have dealt with this at Morehouse School of Medicine and with the Black Doctors, uh, blackdoctor.org, what we have done is uh, acknowledge that there were wrongdoings during those times, acknowledge the harm that it caused, and say, okay, now how do we learn from that? And that because that happened, that should not preclude us from participating in our future. And I think that that has resonated with people because at Morehouse School of Medicine, we did not have any challenges with enrolling uh, persons in the clinical trials. I think what's key though, and I learned this back in the 90s, early 2000s, when I first got into clinical trial work, the messenger matters. So I was at the University of Kansas and I was doing third generation progesterone birth control pill trials. And I always had the highest enrollment of African-Americans and Hispanics. But that was because, for instance, I had a, a research coordinator that was African-American, one that was Hispanic and one that was Caucasian. And they went to the respective communities, sometimes together, sometimes individually to make sure that people saw someone who looked like them or that they could identify a relationship with. And that is how you build that trust. Mm. So you've talked so convincingly about how this works in academics, but of course, clinical trials are also run by drug companies. How do you manage <laughs> to, to, to uh, convince them or get the message across more broadly um, about the importance of diversity and not just racial diversity, but also women, which of course has been a huge issue, women of childbearing age and the lack of data um, for pregnant women about these recent vaccines. Right. So, you know, Francis, early on, we, we oh, 30 years ago, uh, with the Office of Research and Women's Health, right? And I've been on several panels for them and, and been a member of that advisory group for many, many years. We have known that uh, sex differences matter. 
Uh, early on, we knew the differences in just how a heart attack, right, appears in a woman versus a man because of the size of our vasculature, et cetera, et cetera. So we know that these things exist. And we've pushed it downstream to make sure that we have gender diversity when we even do an animal study so that we can make sure that we are accounting for this along the continuum of research. I think the important thing is, is that we have to make sure that pharmaceutical companies understand that if we really want people to reach their optimal level of health and we're going to have interventions like drugs or technology, we need to account for those differences that may occur when people are taking the drugs or are utilizing the technology. And the only way you will know that is that you have the persons those different people participate in the clinical trials. And I am I am reminded as you speak about that, of the recent um, diversity investigations via equ equitable research studies for everyone or the Diverse Trials Act. So it's not just us who are recognizing this and asking pharmaceutical companies to pay attention, but Congress is. And you know that this uh, act will enable the Department of uh, HHS to provide grants to bolster education and the recruitment for clinical trials for diseases that disproportionately impact underrepresented groups. So we're very excited that others are listening and understanding how, it in, how important it is to diversify those individuals who are participating in clinical trials because we want everyone to reach their optimal level of health. And we won't know that if we don't have persons participate in clinical trials. So you're painting this great picture of progress. If you could take a magic wand now and and uh, swipe it to wipe away the greatest challenge you face in terms of enrolling people who really reflect the country, what would that be? What do you what do you want to have happen? What's the biggest thing that you keeps you up at night as you as you look ahead? You know, as, as I think about this, and I've been doing this a long time. Early back when I started the Center for Women's Health Research in Meharry, which was the first center that looked at diseases that disproportionately impacted women of color, and there were two things that impacted our ability to enroll people in clinical trials: education, and with education is tied to trust, so it does matter how we convey information and and have people to understand that this is a choice that they are not a patient, that they are a participant or a subject, and they are given choice. And then the second thing is the removal of the barriers for people participating. So many times when you look at women in underserved communities or person in underserved communities, those social determinants of health continue to creep into the picture. Am I gonna be able to take off work for the amount of time that I have to come in for the clinical trial? Will I be reimbursed for my time off work? Do I have transportation? Do I have childcare? All of those things are real factors in people participating in a clinical trial. <clears throat> so pharmaceutical companies and other entities that are running these trials need to account for that. Sometimes and many times we know, Francis, that we are paying it forward. We are not going to get a direct benefit, but generations to come will. And we have to convey that. This mm. is a part of our social contract to one another, right? That we are paying it forward. So you look at many of the breast cancer trials or when we were doing the early work, looking at 
breast density and trying to determine what was the best imaging type, particularly because we were seeing missed uh, lesions in women of color. And we recognized that breast, uh, black women had more dense breasts. Well, yes, there was an immediate benefit to you when we went from digital to analog, but we also were able to compile a lot of data to support now that all mammograms should be done with digital because there is a higher level of precision in identifying a mass. And so that was a story we had to tell. We had to build trust. Men and women had to come in and have two mammograms. And, and no, anyone who's had a mammogram knows that it's not fun even the first <laughs> time. So they asked me to do it twice. And so they were paying it forward, right? right. They were paying it forward for uh, the new science and discovery that was going to come about. I have a question that's come in from our audience over Twitter that I'd like to read to you. It Thanks. comes from Cheese. And she says... Mm -hmm. Um, any thought to developing a special online resource to enable improved and proactive clinical trial access to people of color? Oh, for sure. I, I think that would be a great idea. There are many of us who have been looking at what we call contract research organizations and how we enable those organizations to provide better access using technology. As you know, many of us believe that we should be able to enroll anyone in a clinical trial uh, online and with digital access. Yes, there are parts of the physical exam, there are parts of the blood collection, et cetera, or the, uh, if you're looking at a new technology that can't be done online, but the initial engagement can definitely be done online. And we would believe that if we looked at partnerships, between primary care providers. And particularly, let's say I'm looking at a, 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 a new drug intervention with diabetes. Well, the one thing, if I need to enroll people in diabetes for a diabetic trial, what's the one thing, Francis, that has to be true? They have to have a diagnosis of diabetes. Right. That was right. usually done with the provider. So if you did a partnership with the primary care providers, and then you can have them as your partner to help enroll a diverse population of persons in a clinical trial such that we can segment it by zip code, we can segment it by race, ethnicity, gender, and we could have that diversity that we so much talk about. And we can do it through technology online so that we can get people's, uh, address people's concerns early on before they have that first engagement or first physical engagement uh, with the clinical trials unit. So I think over the last couple of years, we've seen so much greater awareness of the need to bring diversity to all aspects of our life. And I'd love you to talk to a little bit about the generations of students now coming in, do they bring a greater awareness than previous students of the kinds of key issues you're raising about clinical trials? They do, and they are demanding that we think differently. So I can tell you here at Morehouse School of Medicine and at other academic health centers where I have the opportunity to go and speak to students, they are very much aware of the importance of diversity in clinical trials, the diversity in uh, the populations that they serve. They understand how the social determinants of health influence people's outcomes. 
they they all know about the Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks and anything else that maybe uh, Dr. Washington, who uh, published a book, Medical Apartheid, any of that information they know about and they will challenge you. And they are fully expecting for us to have more robust participation of others in care delivery um, of how we extend care to others. They are also aware of how diversity influences their thinking. So when you look at data, particularly with when you look at um, the uh, ability, the alignment of race and, and gender with the provider and the patient, you know we see better outcomes, particularly with black patients when their provider is black. We see more compliance with some of the recommendations. And many of our majority students are saying, okay, what is happening in that connection that is enabling this provider to get better outcomes with this patient population? And many of them are asking for us to look at this objectively and use that as a part of our teaching. And we do that in small group settings or in our standardized patient settings, et cetera, so that they can learn what we talk about, cultural competence, cultural humility, all of those things that contribute to improve patient outcomes because that provider is able to look at that person across from them and say, based on who's sitting in front of me, what's possible? And in order so, for you to ask that question, you have to put yourself second. And so, yes, this generation is expecting it. Now, Francis, what we have to do, though, we have to increase the diversity of the population of people that we're educating and training to be clinicians in this country. And as you know, we are at a flat line when it looks at uh, African-American physicians. We see a little bit of an increase, but nothing significant that compares with the representation of us in the United States. And so Morehouse School of Medicine, along with other institutions, are definitely looking at how we can increase that population of providers that would be African-American because we think it matters. We know that it matters in patient outcomes. Dr. Montgomery Rice, I don't want to let you go without talking to you about the recent Supreme Court decision, the Dodds decision. Um, before yeah. this decision, I think black women were two times as likely to have delayed or no prenatal care at all. What is your feeling about the impact on minorities of this decision? You know, Roe versus Wade is something that's been hanging in the background for so many years. And 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 full disclosure, you know, I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, reproductive endocrinologist, and fertility specialist. And I am pretty convinced that this decision is going to have an adverse impact on the health of Black and Hispanic women who suffer already from a high maternal mortality rate. When you look at the average maternal mortality rate, it's about, what, 17 per 100,000, but for Black women, it is 43 per 100,000. And we think about the achievement of maternal health equity. We know that we have to change that. The concern is, is that 50% of pregnancies are unintended. And we know that many unintended pregnancies occur because of the lack of access to care to reproductive health care, that is also to contraception or to other components of your reproductive health care that may lead to you having a different decision or engaging differently that could prevent that unintended pregnancy. 
So I am gravely concerned that we also see black women when they have the, when they are pregnant, they will have, I believe, three to four times more likely to suffer from a pregnancy related death versus a white woman. So when you see this component of a comprehensive women health care options be taken away, and you already see women of color being disproportionately impacted by being pregnant, I know that they're going to suffer more. And so I hope that we will continue to see a lot of conversation around this, that we will empower physicians, clinicians to be able to adequately provide preconceptual counseling to people, contraception to persons so that we can prevent unintended pregnancies. But then when an unintended pregnancy occurs and a woman makes a choice, I hope that that decision will continue to be between she and her provider and the privacy that should in, be vested on that woman in the confines with her healthcare provider will be honored. Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, that was a very sobering note to finish on, but thank you also for sharing so much optimism about some of the other areas in which progress is made. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'll be back in a few moments with our next guest, Dr. Michael McKanga. Don't leave us. Hello and welcome back. I'm Francis Steed Sellers and delighted to sorry, continue this conversation with Dr. Michael McKanga, who is the executive director of the European and Developing Countries Clinical Trial Partnership. So we're going to be talking about this issue on an international scale now. Dr. McKanga, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much, Francis, for having me. I think we maybe have a little trouble with sound there, so we'll keep going. And while we do so, let me talk to the audience. Please send in your questions to at postlive. That's at postlive for audience questions. Dr. McKanga, if you can hear me, um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about the partnership you are executive director of. Maybe you can talk about the European and African bonds and the importance of them. Thank you very much. The European and Developing Countries Clinical Trials Partnership is a partnership between European and African member states and co-funded by the European Union that aims to accelerate the development of new medical interventions against poverty-related diseases, in particular, HIV AIDS, TB, malaria, lower respiratory tract infections, diarrhea diseases, and emerging and re-emerging diseases that are of particular relevance to Sub-Saharan Africa. And this is done by uh, through clinical trials, all phases of clinical trials, and also developing the related capacity in terms of infrastructure and skilled uh, workforce to implement this work. You know, I was stunned to learn that fewer than 3% of clinical trials um, take place on the African continent. Maybe you can help me understand why that is so and what can be done about it and what impact it has. Yes, no, thank you very much for raising this. As you realize, 17 African, the African continent represents 17% of the world population and also has 25% of the disease burden. But despite this, only 3% of clinical trials are taking place in Sub-Saharan Africa. And the problem behind this is multifaceted. 
One, of course, is that most of the diseases that affect uh, Africa are diseases that may have limited market value in terms of the pharmaceutical companies or companies that are involved in product development. Secondly, product development requires money, investment uh, from the public and the, from the private, but it also requires the right infrastructure and human workforce to be able to take this forward and the willingness and political support from the countries where this is done. So this is part of the problem why we have limited clinical trials uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I have to say that over the last uh, 10 to 20 years, there have been a growing number of clinical trials through the involvement of partnerships and um, initiatives like ours, the, the uh, European and Developing Countries Clinical Trials Partnership, and others that are investing in research and development. But this requires more investment. And the incidence of COVID-19 has really uh, brought this uh, to, our, to our understanding that we need to invest in this area more. I'm going to ask you more about COVID in, in particular, but I'd love you to step back and just talk about how other vaccines that are routinely administered in a country like the US have taken a long time to penetrate various African countries and how that's happened. Well, uh, in this case, I want to look at this from three perspectives on the side of supply. Supply requires availability. Uh, of the vaccines uh, that are rolled out in the high-income countries. Often, the uh, high-income countries prioritize their populations to make these vaccines available to them. And uh, on the side of the low- and middle-income countries, for these to be available, the financing has to come through special mechanisms uh, that are put in place to help these vaccines to be available. And this requires a lot of fundraising. So that is one thing, availability and price. The second is on the demand side. Uh, the people have to want to be vaccinated. And in this case, there has to be mobilization for people to understand the value of vaccination and also to know enough about the diseases and uh, the need for this vaccination to happen. The third aspect is really linking the supply and demand, making sure that these vaccines can be easily produced in the countries where they need it. In many cases, uh, these vaccines are imported into the countries and there are limited facilities to produce or manufacture these vaccines in countries. Over. So specifically to ask you about COVID, we have had two vaccines, mRNA vaccines. Um, one in particular has required um, cold sub-zero storage um, and has been quite difficult to deliver. What do you hope to see in the future with a Novavax or another vaccine that could come along, be single shot? Uh, would this be a game changer for countries in Africa, for example? Well, um, one has to look into uh, the delivery mechanisms for the, uh, for the vaccines. Normally when interventions are evaluated, it's not enough to just look at the product. It's important to look at the delivery mechanisms because this can result in efficacy decay. But that said, uh, even in the situation of the messenger RNA vaccines, uh, 
where the demand is high and there's willingness on the side of the countries uh, to put mechanisms in place uh, in vaccines that have a very short half-life, I mean shelf life, and also require uh, a very stringent cold chain uh, mechanism. This is something that has been worked on because when we look at the veterinary medicine, they're able to carry out uh, procedures that are related to artificial insemination, and they're able to deliver these even to remote areas. So where there is willingness, mechanisms can be put in place. But that aside, it is important to look at vaccines that can very easily be delivered, uh, especially in the settings where the temperatures are high and also uh, the delivery mechanisms may be compromised, creating delays in these vaccines reaching the people that need them most. So we've talked about countries a little bit and uh, private companies, but key in here are these non-governmental organizations, philanthropic organizations. What's their role? What impact have they had over the last two years or year and a half, I guess, of, of vaccine delivery? Yes. Um, on the side of vaccine delivery, I have to say that um, this also stems back before we come to delivery. It's the involvement of this, of this partnership. Uh, of both the private and the public sector in the development of these vaccines. You'll find that many of the partners that are involved in the product development tend to have more interest in the delivery of these products once they are developed. So in this case, the private partners that are mainly involved in, these, uh, in the delivery of these vaccines are partners that have also played a role in one way or another in the development of these products. And I have to say that also the um, philanthropic organizations are playing a big role in helping, uh, working especially in partnership with Africa Centers for Disease Control, and also working in partnership with the regional uh, office for WHO to make sure that the countries have access mechanisms for these vaccines. So the uh, philanthropic organizations are playing a role in mobilizing uh, the other partners that are involved in, pub in, in the development of these products. Over. So early in the pandemic, as the vaccines were coming along, I remember in my reporting hearing from a number of public health experts who said that the developing world, in the developing world is quite frequently that one sees a big mass vaccine campaign. What kinds of lessons are there that developed countries could learn from the developing world about how to implement public health programs like that? Well, um, I'm glad that you're raising this. Uh, there was a lot of uh, saying before that the burden of COVID-19 was going to really hit uh, the African continent very hard. But one of the areas that have been helpful is drawing from the lessons the, uh, of the other diseases that the African continent has had to deal with. One of them being, of course, uh, diseases like HIV, where there have been a lot of community engagement, diseases like Ebola that have been very severe on the populations and have involved uh, a lot of community mobilization and also um, training of health workers to work under very tough conditions uh, with limited resources to be able to deliver. And uh, the other part is, of course, really the trust that is in the people. 
you'll find that in many times when these interventions are brought on board, where there is mutual trust between the service providers and the community where these interventions are being rolled out, there is better uptake. And I think this is one area where um, the African continent has done pretty well. And also relating, uh, being able to diversify these limited resources for other diseases to be able to uh, combat or respond to uh, COVID-19. So we, t we talked to Dr. Montgomery Rice just now so much about this issue of trust in the United States, of trusted messages, of vaccine ambassadors, penetrating communities that might be distrustful. But again, I'd love to ask you specifically about African countries and whether this distrust of um, vaccines brought in by develop the developed world, you know, rich countries bringing in vaccines. Well, we need to step a step backwards. Before you have the product, it is important to involve the people and institutions in Africa in the development of these interventions. When this is done and there is buy-in uh, in the whole process, then the uptake of these products is better. You realize that many of the African countries, uh, one of the things they've done best is to involve their local scientists, to involve uh, the people that are involved in research and development in these countries, although these people are few, they've tried to engage them to be part of the advisory committees for the presidents, for the governments. And when this is done and interventions are part and parcel of, uh, they are linked to these policymakers or are linked to these opinion leaders, you'll find that the uptake is better. Now, where we've had situations where products have been developed from out and brought in as donations, there have been a lot of uh, uh, a trust issue where people are not trusting. Is this developed to uh, impact us negatively or is it really to our benefit? And this is where now the opinion leaders on side of the uh, people in leadership are playing a very, very big role to talk to the people and also using other mechanisms, especially that are engaging with the community. That is really key in the uptake of these products. I can't resist asking you about the beginning of the Omicron outbreak, of course, linked with South Africa and very good data coming out of South Africa earlier on. Talk to me a little bit about the global perspective there when I think some South Africans felt there was a negative response, including closing, closing down air traffic out of South Africa. Um, is the fallout from that continuing? Well, I have to say that this was uh, a very bad thing to do, especially on the side of the high income countries. And it really brings to, uh, it really shows clearly that there is need for regional studies and need for developing capacity uh, for against these interventions. And in this case, the genomics capacity that has been developed in South Africa clearly shows that when there is capacity that is available in countries, you're able to develop and identify um, new, new uh, scientific findings that can be of global utility. And in this case, the findings of, COVID, of, uh, of Omicron uh, as a variant in this case has been very, very helpful and very eye-opening to the rest of the world. And comment, I mean, uh, the 
South African scientists have to be commended, greatly commended for this. Uh, and of course, the surrounding countries that are cooperating in part of this uh, research work and the research networks in, the, in genomics. So COVID has been such a lesson in the fact that viruses don't respect borders, that pandemics quickly become global. Now we have monkeypox spreading in many parts of the world. Do you think, do you have any optimism that there's a greater understanding that we need to take a global approach to uh, viral and other disease or other pathogens? Well, um, at first I thought that there is a better understanding of this uh, following from the current pandemic of COVID-19. Uh, but there is still uh, this distancing of certain diseases to certain regions, where uh, when it is perceived that a certain disease belongs to a certain region, less attention, investment into it, uh, and, and investment into it is done. And this is the situation we are seeing on the side of uh, monkeypox. I know there are some efforts that are being made uh, to do some work, especially to look at the existing uh, smallpox, uh, smallpox vaccines and also the development of new vaccines uh, against monkeypox. But more can be done uh, in this case. I have to say that we need to realize better that these diseases know no boundaries and we need to work cooperatively uh, between governments, but also the public and private sector uh, taking on from the lessons we've learned from COVID-19. Before we finish, I do want to ask you about the current trajectory of the coronavirus pandemic, the vaccine availability in Africa. Where do you see things standing at the moment in Africa? Well, I have to say that uh, on the African side, the vaccination rates is still uh, very low. We are looking at 18.7% uh, of the population are fully vaccinated on the African continent. In comparison to other regions like North America, you're talking at 63.9%, uh, uh, Europe 65.8%, Asia around 80%. So most of the other regions, it's more than 60%. And yet on the African continent, it's still very limited. And even then, you're talking about 18.7%, but you have a very heterogeneous picture. There are some countries that have done better, like South Africa, where you have about 46% uh, that are fully vaccinated and uh, about 52% of, uh, of the health workers that are vaccinated as well. But in this case, more has to be done uh, on the side of vaccination, because this is the only way that we can be able to uh, prevent and minimize new infections coming up. Uh, and also coupling this with other intervention measures uh, like continued uh, mask wearing, limited uh, mask gatherings, and also in situations of indoor uh, gatherings where there's uh, compromised ventilation, that this uh, attention is paid to the vaccination and combining them with these public health interventions. I'm going to try and squeeze in one last question before we finish and we'll have to do it quickly and we'll have to have a quick response. But 
you know, we've, we've learned from the pandemic that viruses don't respect borders. We've also learned that a huge disease outbreak like this is not just a disease outbreak, it's also a national security risk and various other factors. Do we need a new global body beyond the WHO to tackle these huge threats to mankind? Well, in situations like this, uh, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. They may not be necessary to create a new global body, but you may within WHO have a specialized body that is strengthened to address uh, global security and issues that are related to uh, epidemic preparedness to be able to combat uh, future uh, epidemic threats. Dr. Michael Makanga, thank you so much for bringing uh, this important discussion onto a global plane. Thank you for joining Washington Post Live. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.